Good morning. This is your host, Hacker Mike, coming at you from New Jersey. And uh, today we have a late start. The sun is already almost coming up. And it's 6 o'clock in the morning, so very late. So we don't have the usual um, extra hour to go over everything. Yesterday's show, we talked about um, an interesting topic of how the left is taking over the institutions and how the right has opened the gates of hell by (laughs) implementing ideologies and legislating ideology and how that is just being captured and used against them. So hey guys, don't legislate ideology. You know? Because it can turn on you. So, um... That being said, we're going to uh, go to the next segment. Well, first update is there is a data user-defined language or domain-specific language module for Haskell, which allows you to embed important parts of the compiler, well, important parts of the language into the runtime without exposing the entire language. So that is the... um, Ivory system, and there's other ones. Oh, I'm getting a phone call. Yeah, so, um, the Ivory system seems to be an interesting way to embed a language in your um, code, in your runtime, and we're going to explore that a little bit, what we can do with it. But, um, I guess you don't really need the whole language. Now there's also some experiments with embeddable Haskell. Um, <clears throat> and I actually don't have problems with embedding the entire runtime into the web server, but uh, I guess it could be a security issue. Um, <clears throat> so we'll get there. We're going to slowly move towards that. Um, yeah, and I really like the idea of the... Uh, concept that I came up with, the the string to type, the type to string, the interactive, the interactive um, system for the user to specify types and create them. So even if that domain-specific language is just the type system that they're allowed to create, And it generates code. That's cool. So we're going to get there. We'll see. More to come. Yeah, so this kind of gets into the um, idea of knowledge and unification. So we know that we don't know everything. We know that we're missing a lot of knowledge. 
And we know that a lot of things are possible. You know, when you Google for an idea, you often find someone's already done it before. But that doesn't mean that it's actually usable or does it the way you want it to do it. Like, I've been playing with this forestry.io and it's definitely not the system that I can stick my wife on. There's a lot of low-level details, a lot of stuff that she can't handle. So we need more domain-specific languages, as I said. And um, we're going to get there. Um, world of ideas versus the world of implementations. And um, something to think about. We're going to uh, think about this more, but I'm kind of thinking like you have an idea for something and uh, you know that other people have had it. You know that there's terms for it, but we don't know what those terms are. So we have to find, search by content to find something that's similar. This is where we get into books with definitions and the ability to, to figure out what terms other people have used. I guess we're getting into keyword searches here. But wouldn't it be great if you could find an idea by content, like you could describe it and not have to use keywords to find things? And keywords meaning specific, specific fachjargon, topic uh, words that are invented by the uh, by developers and by scientists. What if we could just describe something in layman's terms and then be able to find it? So. Um, I guess it would be great if I had a dictionary of philosophy and mathematics and knowledge and theories that I could just search. A collection of papers, monographs, that we could just mine for ideas. That'd be pretty cool. Instead of looking at papers as who cited who, we would look for what ideas are embedded and where and how do they propagate. That might be interesting. Sounds like a difficult problem though. But let's think about it. Let's just consider it. And um, let's talk about this in a while. But I like the idea of moving forward in the modeling function of the brain, just treating it as a function. And, um, yeah, I mean, Gödel Escherbach really did me in in terms of recursive functions 
before getting lost in the rabbit hole. They talk about these chaos functions where you have a function and the output of the function is the input to the function. These chaos maps and that they uh, become unpredictable or predictable over time. Complex functions. So, um, fractals might fall into that. But, um, we need to also maybe take a step back from all that for once and look at what can we do with the tools we have, like Minecraft. The Minecraft world is simple. You've got these blocks, you have this situation, this is how you deal with it. Very simple rules. There's some comfort to that. So, I guess we're going to talk about understanding of things, ability to translate and have a deeper understanding. But with scientific texts, it's often a closed world where the terms defined so that you can try and extract some knowledge, and often it's a mathematical knowledge. So maybe what we're talking about here is a mathematical database or mathematical search. And that's kind of what Wolfram does, computational search. What if we can make an open version of that? One that's not locked into Wolfram? What if we could express the theories of the world using some language? Something like Haskell or some cool language. That would be very expressive. And then we could translate using machine learning, supposedly, some text into that language describe the world, resolve ambiguities, find the truth of nature and the world. What a concept. Well, that's great. So that's my little intro for today. And now we're going to listen to a podcast on the scientific revolution that never happened. And I'll try and extract some clips from it. The guy doesn't have a great speaking voice like that mathematics professor David something, Bresson, Bressaud. So um, maybe we're going to abandon this, but we're going to at least give him a try. And I'll be listening to it and clipping it. I'm not going to listen to the whole thing. I'm just going to load it into my editor, listen to it piece by piece, extract clips, comment on it, and listen to it with you at the first 
for the first time. So it's going to be an interesting learning experience for all of us. Let's get into it. So he's telling the history of science as embodied in people in blood. The memes that live and consume the human that sit on our backs and use us to carry themselves forward into the future. Yeah, so the next uh, clip is going to go over the um, what, what his problem was with the book on the history of science when he read it that motivated him to write this book. I think I had, and I hope many people have, an inherent interest in the physicality of people, in the, in the setting in which people live, in the purposes, in their flesh and bloodedness, and in making knowledge as, as a kind of work. This is what I experienced in doing science, and I wanted to see if I could, as many other historians have tried to do, to introduce some of these things and telling stories about this famous passage of, of science in the 16th and 17th centuries. So I mentioned the chaos system, the map, as the system that takes its own output as an input. And let's kind of take that as part of the consciousness model, the awareness model, where we have a system that over time observes what's going on around it and then takes what's going on around it as input to then create the next level <clears throat> or next step in output. So hopefully it's raising the energy level and uh, what do you call it? Negative entropy, adding in value in some function. But um, I'm starting to think that this next segment <clears throat> where he talks about science as be, uh, there's fundamental changes caused by science that then change science, the um, that, that then cause science to change. I think that's this feedback loop, this chaos system. Um, that we can use to model what uh, what's going on. So science is creating theories of the world to share with other people, but those theories of the world are then used to view the world, and then the consequences of those theories um, cause ripples and changes in knowledge and uh, let's say biases and cause a retraining of the uh, of the neural network that, that that runs the memes so let's just say the theory is the meme um, there's a mutation 
that meme mutates. There's a new meme that comes out that's more successful, and it goes and it starts to devour the other ones and to take their place. Um, but it's not just the meme, there's also the artifacts that embody the meme. So the computer, the language, the physicality, the artifacts, the embodiments of the uh, symbols, the embodiments of the memes, the embodiments of technology, technological artifacts as encoding of an idea that carries it forward, the program as an encoding, a physical encoding. Um, and then you can reverse engineer that program, you can reverse engineer that piece of equipment to discover the ideas behind it. That's why playing with a game is so much fun, because you're, you're breaking it apart, you're trying to understand that little piece. And then, um, and then it causes a shift in the mindset and opens up that new theory will open up new levels, which can then be built upon. And then those new levels will then contain, I suppose, another revolution in them where the entire system could get reworked again. So there's more than a truth. There's just successive waves of modeling and um, meme infection into the neural network, just ideas in the global mind, thoughts in the global mind embodied in a distributed network of humans, wave after wave. And then there's the context of war and fighting and conquest which drive meme uh, development so let's uh hear what's happening here and um what he has to say in this next clip he's going to basically tell us how he wrote the book and what's important that He's going to show that things are more complicated in the stories of our heroes and how he wants to show what people believed in, um, <clears throat> you know, what Newton believed and what these people believed and how they saw things at the time. And, uh, well, we're going to, this is an interesting story and we're going to get deeper into it. Your question. The question, how did we get from, for example, from Copernicus to Newton, is a question that Poiret would completely have recognized, because it's a question that asks, how do we situate the scientific revolution in the lineage that leads to modern science? And it's a question that situates the lineage as changes in astronomy and specifically in mathematics and I'm going to say natural philosophy. Listeners can think of the, of the term physics if they like. So the request for stereotypical changes, I think, can see too much to the picture that Quare was painting about how modern science was made. 
the trouble that I'm trying to make for that story is, I think, a little bit more significant than the idea of making things more complex. Because I don't simply want to make trouble for the Copernicus to Newton uh, model. I want to suggest other, and as you say, fundamental changes that are taking place in this period that are also important for the question about how did we get from there to, to here. Fundamental changes that are taking place in this period that are also important for the question about how did we get from there to, to here. Uh, and they're questions that direct attention away from mathematical physics, if you like, and to sciences that are re rarely thought of in terms of making the modern world, but uh, that I'm trying to suggest are really important in, in, in doing so. So that's one issue. The other issue is the question of coherence. So to give an account of what Copernicus believed or what Isaac Newton believed is usually in traditional history of science to ask what aspects of what they believed and what aspects of what they did led up to the present, led up to, to modern science. Now, one thing that historians do that's, I think is interesting, it should be interesting to general readers, but it's sometimes not appreciated by, by many people, is they, they don't ask how did we get the right answer, but what did people believe at a specific time and place? In other words, to characterize the variety of belief, the heterogeneity of belief, and also how much of the old was contained in what we regard as the new. Let me give you two quick examples. One example comes from Copernicus. Copernicus discovered, as we say, the heliocentric system of the universe, but he did, he did not discover Kepler. He did not discover Isaac Newton, and he retained the idea of perfect circular motion, which he inherited from classical antiquity, specifically from Aristotle. Isaac Newton, we celebrate as discovering the universal uh, laws of gravitation, the inverse square law. But what he believed about gravity is, a, is an interesting and disputed matter. Isaac Newton also wrote more words on alchemy and biblical chronology than he did on, on natural philosophy and mathematics. So these are issues that I think should be interesting if the question is, what did they believe at the time, with a subsidiary question, who believed what at the time, and what were they trying to achieve at the time? And th these questions are rather constrained by the question, how did we get from there to, to modern science or some typification of modern science? And I, I mean that not as a dantic off-putting to potential readers, but as I hope as a matter of, this is interesting. This is more interesting than you thought it might be if the question was, how did modern science get discovered? And that's why I, I think the idea of making things more complex somewhat understates what I'm trying to do. But one concession that I want definitely to make to your question, the respect that I have for the question, his book starts with a sense that a lot of people have quoted, and that is, uh, there was no such thing as the scientific revolution. The sentence goes on, and this is a book about it. So it's a hybrid performance. I want to recognize that stories about the scientific revolution are so widely distributed in our culture, are so widely regarded as the passage that made the modern world, that I wanted to pay homage to those stories. 
by dealing in the book with some of the canonical passages and some of the canonical figures, and then making trouble for the linear and simple story uh, about them. So the book is definitely a hybrid performance, if you like, a compromised performance, because I could have written a book about fundamental changes in early modern science in which Isaac Newton doesn't appear. And there will be reasons for doing that. But Isaac Newton does appear, and Robert Boyle does appear, and Descartes does uh, appear. So if I'm making myself clear, I hope I wanted to look at, the, at some of the key passages and figures of stories about the scientific revolution making the modern world and use them to try to introduce a more complex, heterogeneous, situated, practical story about what they believed and what they did at the time. And there's one other issue that I think we'll, we may touch on later, and that is, could you tell a story about these fundamental changes in early modern science that do have a lineage to the modern world that are to do with practices like medicine, botany, map making, political economy. And I want to suggest you could do that. I chose not to do that because I wanted to, to as it were, extend a hand to people who know the canonical story. Uh, but I think there's still room for a book in which the book is about revolutionary changes in, in science in the period that take not mathematical physics as the center of the story, uh, but botany. And we can talk about that later if you like. Your book, to some degree, moves away from the... He's going to re-emphasize the need for fact-making, for doing experiments, and how that is <clears throat> the hard part and the interesting part of the science. Poiré didn't think that the doing of experiments much less the empirical interrogation, much less uh, fact-making, was very important to his classical story about the scientific revolution. So to move experiment and fact-making to the center of the story, as you say, is already uh, a bit of a change. That seems extraordinary. So now, this is a great clip coming up where he says there is no scientific method that was agreed upon and it developed from multiple lineages and that anything that you can think of some simple parole, some simple idea that you, you just memorize and you learn in school like, oh, this is the scientific method well, that's a modern invention an oversimplification of things and that's not how people saw things in the past so there's a lot to uh, learn here, and I hope uh, you're enjoying this as much as I am. In this next great clip, he's going to throw in the history and the evolution of ideas, uh, <clears throat> the context of them as being documented by the Marxists, and how that infuriated the West. Um, <clears throat> And he talks about the means of production and mechanic and the, uh, the evolution of the means of production. So that's an interesting, um, an interesting take on it. And uh, wow, this is a great lecture. This next clip is very important. It talks about how 
the evolution of technology is also the evolution of the communication technology and the ability for people to read and write and express themselves. And now that's happening even more and more where everyone's got internet and we can express ourselves more and more and the memes are just wild. <clears throat> so I have a, uh, I did a talk at the Trenton Computer Club on the history of open source. And it was a bomb, like my presentation bombed because I didn't, you know, present it properly. But um, I like the idea still, and I'm gonna just, I basically try to show the history of life as a self-replicating entity. And then the evolution of communication tools as, uh, <clears throat> you know, like smoke signals and stuff, um, over time that improved the ability of the memes to trans be transmitted and that how open source software and Wikipedia and such things are becoming the, um, <clears throat> the ultimate, uh, form of communication and the meme, I mean, the Wikipedia as a source of knowledge and a communication tool is incredible. And uh, I think <clears throat> I think we are going to get into the distributed one soon. I really think we need to have a peer-to-peer -peer distributed Wikipedia going on that's decentralized with no central um, point of view at all. We're going to get into that soon, but I think we're going to need something like a peer-to-peer -peer IPFS type situation. Um, if there's not such a thing, this is like the question of like, you think of something has already been done. So we thought about it, now we're going to see if it's already been done. And then we're going to see if that implementation lives up to our standards. But uh, this next clip is really amazing and inspiring so uh, let's play it mix the other things that you've suggested uh and uh include uh changes in the boundaries of participation in culture and specifically in scientific culture print the invention of movable type printing the extension of print and therefore the extension of learning beyond the boundaries that it had in the medieval uh, period so print associated with social changes, uh, extending the boundary of literacy, including a, a group of people that Marxists laid great emphasis on, literate artisans, people actually involved, as Isaac Newton was not, as Descartes was not, in producing things with machines. The extent to which these people became literate and could have access to classical knowledge and produce their own books, recording their own empirical experiences, fundamentally important. This is related to the Protestant Reformation. And that is one of the key gestures of the Protestant Reformation is the authorities of the church say this about the Bible. You read the Bible for yourself. You come to your own opinion, empirically, if you like, in your engagement with Holy Scripture. The fundamental gesture of Protestantism presupposing that Bibles were available to be read by people who, in and also in what we call the vulgar languages, not just in Latin and Greek, 
but in English and Flemish and Italian and so on. Again, extending the boundaries of participation, but also telling people that their engagement with the book, the holy book, was pertinent to discerning uh, truth. And there's a series. In this next clip, he's going to introduce the idea of the new world as being an explosion in new information that challenges everything that the Europeans know. And I really am getting the feeling that my personal issue with school, my personal issue with the sciences has been maybe my anti-authoritarianism or problems with authority and that this authority is actually to be questioned because the authority is a construct of power and it doesn't really mean that it's correct that it's valid it just means that it is in power and we have to really um, understand what is the history what how did things happen and really get behind them to understand them that's what i've always wanted that's what i always wanted in math that's what i always wanted in science is the story is the history is the understanding and that's what really was always missing and they leave that out and they turn the school from a place of learning and understanding to a place of domination and power and that's what i've always i guess i'm just a stubborn guy I've always had problems with that. So <clears throat> this has been such a great mind-opening experience for me personally to be reinvigorated with the love of science and the curiosity of the history. Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? And I think um, we can really start to... I think we can really start to... Uh, consider the history as an input to our function you know well we talked about that looking at the current situation but let's not only look at the current situation as input to the chaos function but let's look at what has happened previously what are our previous experiments and how did they go as input to the function of consciousness of life of scientific progress so we have all these inputs, and the output will be the next step, the next hypothesis, the next um, meme, mutation. Yep. So let's uh, let's continue and cue up this clip. I, I do I do think this guy's dealt well worth listening to, and you might notice that I've cut out the interviewer. Because what he says stands on its own, and I'm hoping that what I'm saying will stand on my own, even if I have to remove this guy's clips for copyright violation. I'm hoping that I'm giving, I'm using it in a fair way, um, presenting it. So, here we go. In this next clip, he's going to introduce the idea of the new world 
as being an explosion in new information that challenges everything that the Europeans know. And I really am getting the feeling that my personal issue with school, my personal issue with the sciences has been maybe my anti-authoritarianism or problems with authority and that this authority is actually to be questioned because the authority is a construct of power and it doesn't really mean that it's correct, that it's valid. It just means that it is in power. And we have to really um, understand what is the history, what, how did things happen, and really get behind them to understand them. That's what I've always wanted. That's what I always wanted in math. That's what I always wanted in science is the story, is the history, is the understanding. And that's what really was always missing. And they leave that out and they turn the school from a place of learning and understanding to a place of domination and power. And that's what I've always, I guess I'm just a stubborn guy. I've always had problems with that. So <clears throat> this has been such a great mind-opening experience for me personally to be reinvigorated with the love of science and the curiosity of the history. Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? And I think um, we can really start to I think we can really start to uh, consider the history as an input to our function. You know, well, we talked about that, looking at the current situation. But let's not only look at the current situation as input to the chaos function, but let's look at what has happened previously. What are our previous experiments and how did they go as input to the function of consciousness, of life, of scientific progress? So we have all these inputs and the output will be the next step the next hypothesis, the next um, meme, mutation. Yep. So let's uh, let's continue and cue up this clip. I, I do I do think this guy's dealt well worth listening to. And you might notice that I've cut out the interviewer because what he says stands on its own, and I'm hoping that what I'm saying will stand on my own, even if. I have to remove this guy's clips for copyright violation. I'm hoping that I'm giving, I'm using it in a fair way, um, presenting it. So here we go. A series of, uh, of other issues. Now one moves away from mathematical physics to the center of the story to things that I've suggested, like cartography, like political economy, like botany, like medicine. Many of these items remain on the list of relevant causes that go into the mix, but voyages of discovery assume a much greater emphasis here. Europeans are, are encountering the new rapidly. 
the unexpected new, new plants, uh, new minerals, new, new people, new uh, religions, new, new belief systems as these voyages uh, of discovery to the East and the West proceed. And this continues through the 18th and uh, 19th century. Also, the embeddedness in these voyages of discovery of technologies that require scientific knowledge, new scientific knowledge, more exact scientific knowledge, navigation, open sea navigation, is a tremendously important spur the development of astronomy and mathematical astronomy, map making, star chart making, lunar theory making. You needed these things for effective open sea navigation. So not only did these voyages bring back new things from the newly discovered lands, in order to, to explore over these distances, you actually needed not just new technology for navigation and for finding your way about, but new scientific knowledge to make those new tools. And then you needed ways of describing the distant world. So map making, not just on land, but also on the, the open sea. But how did you tell people about the plots that you had discovered in the East Indies? How did you make pictures of them? How, if at all, could you bring them back? How could you describe, how could you acquire knowledge of what the powers of these plants were, especially the medicinal powers? Uh, all of these things are, are, are relevant to telling a story about the fundamental changes in knowledge that took place, uh, and, and there are more, because as we, as we develop a more heterogeneous view of what these fundamental changes were, more and more circumstances, conditions, and causes become relevant. I think we've touched on some of the main ones, uh, but there are more. This next clip, nature is a plenum. So plenum, I think, comes is the root of the word plenty, P-L-E-N. Nature is a plenum, nature is full of stuff. Nature abhors a vacuum. So he takes an experiment where he fills a vial with mercury and turns it over into a dish and it creates a vacuum at the end of the tube and uh, the mercury is pulling down with the weight of gravity and it's also heavy so it wants to go down um, and it creates a vacuum at the top of the tube that's quite interesting um, I guess because it's heavy if you did it with water it wouldn't have the same suction ability I would suppose with same weight um, <clears throat> and that's what creates the barometer and I guess it's the air pressure that's uh, holding it back in or pushing it so yeah this is a uh, quite the interesting experiment to think about I need to grasp with it myself Yes, uh, let me be very brief about Torricelli and Pascal. And for the listeners, I want just to briefly describe these, these classic experiments. And I'm going to spend more time because I think what Boyle was doing is really rather different. Uh, and uh, I also want to point out that it is Boyle or Boyle and his technicians that invented the air pump. This is an invention, 1658, 1659, uh, that were not available to Torricelli and Pascal. Torricelli, as we now say, invents the barometer. And what he does is he takes a glass cylinder about 30 inches long, fills it up with mercury, 
sticks his thumb over the open part of the, of the tube, inverts it into a dish containing more mercury. And what he sees is the column of the mercury descends. So the full tube of mercury uh, now has a space above it. And the height of the mercury in the tube standing up above the level of mercury in the dish is about 29 inches. That's Torricelli. And as we now say, if we have our barometric readings, it's um, uh, the barometer reading is 30.06 or 29.54. That's the barometer is basically the Torricelli experiment. Now, what does Torricelli think he's done? What he's done is one experiment. It's a classic experiment. He wants to uh, address the question, a uh, classic question about whether a vacuum exists. Okay, and he wants to answer the question about if a vacuum exists, why is it to that extent? Remember the top of the tube, he's got about an inch. There's nothing there. Question, is that nothing a vacuum? So he's engaging with a question that was known to Aristotle, that the Aristotelians that are around at his time have a big investment in. And the investment is there cannot be, of the Aristotelians, there cannot be a vacuum. And the reason is nature abhors a vacuum. So wherever a vacuum threatens to exist, matter will rush in to fill it to prevent a vacuum from existing. The world is a plenum. That's to say it's full of stuff. There is no vacuum. And the reason that there is no vacuum is because nature abhors a vacuum. This next clip is going to talk about the ocean of air pressing down and how Pascal's experiment was to take this barometer and send his brother-in-law up the mountain and see how the pressure got less and the vacuum became larger. So I guess once you leave the atmosphere, there will be no air pressure. And I guess the air pressure is pushing the mercury down on the mercury and pushing it back into the tube. Is that possible? Gravity is pulling it down. Air pressure is pushing on it from outside and uh, wanting to push it into the tube. So the higher the air pressure, the more it's going to push the mercury back into the tube. And the weight of the mercury is pulling it down. If there was no air pressure, um, if there's a vacuum inside and out, the mercury would just flow right out. All right, here's the clip. It's a vacuum. This is a classical problem, and one experiment Torricelli is dealing with addresses that question. Now, it doesn't uh, address the question about abhorrence because the response from an Aristotelian is, yes, there can be no atmospheric air at the top of this tube. All you have established, Torricelli, is that nature's abhorrence of a vacuum is limited. That's the extent to which nature abhors a vacuum. The same reason why you cannot pump water up beyond about 30 feet. Now, Pascal is also interested in a matter of principle. Pascal is interested, uh, can you model the understanding uh, of, uh, of the atmosphere on, the, on a, a, a balance, a, a balance scales? And he approaches it by doing an experiment. And the experiment involves climbing a mountain. So take Torricelli's experiment 
And Pascal got his brother-in-law to do it, so he didn't have to climb the mountain for himself. We will keep one of these torch showing experiments, a barometer at the bottom of a mountain. And you, my brother-in-law, will take the torch showing experiment up to the top of the mountain, and we will see what happens. And what happens is the level of the uh, mercury in the experiment that's taken up the mountain becomes lower and lower. He's recording the height of the mercury at the bottom of the mountain. So we now have a recording of a lower level of the mercury in the tube at the top of the mountain. And Pascal's conclusion is the weight of the atmosphere is less at the top of the mountain. The ocean of the air is less at the top of the mountain than it is at the bottom. So that what we are measuring in the, in the Pascal experiment is the experimentally establishing the weight of the atmosphere in the same way that you would use weights on a balance to establish the weight of a tested object. Now, what I want to say about these two things is they're relevant to the question of a vacuum. They're relevant to the questions of the nature of matter. They're relevant to the question about whether a mechanical explanation of the natural world is possible, but they are single experiments, classic experiments. The Boyle game, I call it the next clip, where Boyle um, creates a tabletop air pump experiment and does a whole number of experiments. He's changing the game. He's increasing the rapidity of the experiment. He's allowing for faster iteration, a smaller, faster loop, a less experiment, a less expensive experiment. A faster feedback loop, a, um, a better way to propagate memes. So he's creating a new environment for the memes to thrive and live in, or something to observe. Um, I mean, the memes live in the mind, but the mind will be presented with new information faster and quicker and be able to jump from one person to the other and mutate faster and be validated or invalidated. So the game, the game of hypotheses and proof, which is the meme um, mutation, the scientific process, that will become faster. Um, so Let's, let's hear it for Boyle. Experiments. What Robert Boyle is doing in the air pump is something entirely different I want to suggest. And that is he has created, as he pumps the air out of the glass receiver and air pump, he's performing essentially Pascal's experiment and creating a space within the glass receiver in which he can do all sorts of experiments. Is sound propagated? Do birds die? Does a candle go out? And finally, if you put the torus shelling experiment in the air pump, tricky thing to do, and then pump the air out, will you see in the decreasing level of the atmosphere what Pascal's brother-in-law saw as he took the Torricellian barometer up to the top of the Puy de Dome mountain in France? So what he has created, as it were, is an experimental world within the air pump in which he is going to do masses of experiments, not one, but use it as a space in which masses of experiments can be done.
And the final thing I, I want just now to suggest about what Boyle does and the air pump is he doesn't really want to do what could be called metaphysics. Let's take the issue of the vacuum. As he pumps the air out of the receiver and the air pump, is he creating a vacuum? In other words, this contested thing in classical natural philosophy. Is it possible to have a space in which nothing exists? What Boyle says is very English, very modest, very provisional. He says, I'm not going to address the question of a vacuum. What I'm going to say is I've created a space in which there is no or almost no atmospheric air. So he wants to, as it were, create a, 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 a lower temperature. He wants to create a, a, a gap between the doing of experimental science and metaphysics and these sorts of questions uh, about vacuums, about abhorrence, and about mechanism and principle. And he wants to address it in its complexity uh, as doing a whole series uh, of experiments. And the, the point about an air pump experiment is it is creating the world as we like on the dimensions of a tabletop that you can assemble people around, perform a range of experiments, have them witnessed, and then reported in circumstantial detail. So when you describe the idea of the the experimental, the scientific method as a series of framing hypotheses and doing masses of experiments and seeing what is supported and what is not supported, this is very close to what Robert Boyle is trying to do. But I think although it addresses questions about uh, mechanism, about the weight of the atmosphere and about vacuum, I think Boyle is trying to introduce a different game to be played, if I can say so, than Torricelli and, and Pascal are attempting to do. And I hope that's a, a kind of a quick summary of what these three are doing, because they are related. In other words, Boyle is doing what he regards as, uh, he says, the chief experiment. He puts the barometer in the air pump and pumps out the air. So it establishes an intellectual lineage between Torricelli and Pascal and Robert Boyle. But I think what he's doing is such a fundamentally different set of practices that they deserve that sort of respect and attention in their own right. Boy, this next clip is the hammer. Das ist der Hammer, the Germans would say. That is the hammer. It is a great clip. It's, um, <clears throat> he basically goes off and talks about how these... Um, scientists were not against religion they tried to integrate things into religion he talks about the book of nature as the other book that was written by god and then I, we can see why galileo got strung up because basically he was saying that studying the book of nature right will supplant the book of scripture and that scientists natural philosophers like him are in much better shape to resolve the questions of of, of the Bible um, than the uh, than the priests are so he was trying to supplant them and this is something that really the story that I've never heard and I have to now state a theory is it true that the war on religion may be is coming from the great march of the left could it be 
that <clears throat> the communist ideology, the Marxist ideology, opium für das Volk, the religion is opium for the people, that maybe it was the Frankfurt School. I mean, I don't even know. This is just theory. This is just an idea that popped in my head. I wanted to share it. But maybe these books that he's talking about, um, the war against religion, um, maybe they're coming from that type of modern um, philosophy or modern, uh, let's say, Marxist theory or something similar to it. Maybe a fascist theory. I think the fascists also try to get rid of the church. Um, so... Yeah, we're going to uh, open, this is opening up a whole new area of thought, and I hope that you're enjoying this as much as I am. I mean, I think what I want to do is to engage, I hope respectfully, with the sensibilities that, that are surprised, if not shocked, by stories that uh, establish the compatibility of science with religion, or even this, the positive supportive relationship between science and religion in the earlier modern period. Because these stories have themselves an interesting historical origin. They were told in the Victorian period. They're told from the middle to the end of the 19th century. Books called The Conflict of Science and Religion, The Warfare Between Science uh, and Religion. They were told for specific purposes that obtained in the middle to later part of the 19th century. Those books are still in print. And for those who have problems with the teaching of Darwin in the schools or with creationism, uh, or with uh, fundamentalism, those stories continue to be very attractive and very powerful. See, one of the problems of, um, for scientific authority is religious sensibilities. And some of these stories that were told in the 19th century are stories about the scientific revolution and about the conflict between science uh, and religious concerns at the time. Now, as close as historians can come to saying something like this, those stories as stories about the relations between science and religion in the early modern period are wrong. That's not something that historians say uh, lightly, but there was no conflict between the category of science, even the category of natural philosophy and Christian religious sensibilities. True, both science and religion were heterogeneous at the time, and we want to understand it, but the more important thing to understand is how it was that changes in science and even bids for authority for, for new science proceeded through showing their compatibility or even their support for cherished articles of Christian faith and Christian conflict. Those stories have been told uh, in academic history, at least since the 1930s, but they're still not widely known. You mentioned the Book of Nature and perhaps one of the key notions that helps us understand the supportive relation between science and religion is through the book of nature and as you said the belief widely accepted belief at the time was that god wrote two books one is the book of uh, holy scripture divinely authored and especially in in the protestant uh, world that everyone could now read for themselves uh, but god had written another book that had equal authority equal truth about articles of Christian faith, equal evidence of God's existence and, and attributes and power, and this was the book of nature. And they meant this literally. 
In other words, that if you could read the book of nature, in other words, if you could expect nature with the God-given faculties, the God-given faculties of your reason, your observation, and your wit, you would come to the same or more indubitable Christian truths as you would from reading scripture. So you have to understand as nature as a code that could be decoded. And here's an important point, either by an ordinary Christian or by those who are as expert in reading the book of nature as the church was in reading the book of scripture. Now, this is an argument very powerful in terms of the Catholic church that had institutionalized expertise in Bible interpreting. Galileo makes this argument, and of course, as we know, gets in trouble with the church by suggesting an argument uh, that there are people who are skilled in reading the book of nature with which there can be no conflict with the Bible. And the people who are skilled at decoding and reading the book of nature are people like him, skilled natural philosophers and astronomers. For if you read the book of nature in a skilled and informed way, which he knows how to do, there can be no conflict between scripture and the evidence of nature. So that notion of the book of nature, and Galileo goes and say, the book of nature is written in the language of mathematics, and it contains circles and triangles and squares. So those that interpret nature geometrically, if you like geometrically shaped bits of nature moving in mathematical patterns that can be mathematically described, can produce Christian truth equal to or even more indubitable than the book of the Bible. If you look at the interpretation of the Bible, you see the wars of religion. And Galileo is appealing to the idea that competently and skilled interpretation of the book of nature can produce more consensus than Bible reading ever has. This is a dangerous argument, but one he wants to make for the, both the potential contribution that, that science can make to the establishment of religious truths and answering the question, who can do it best? And the answer is not priests. The answer is people like Galileo. And so that's one sort of Galileo, 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 Galileo And that's it, guys, for today. Um, we don't have any time left. It's 8.30. Time to have my coffee, uh, feed my chickens, and check, uh, get ready for to start my day. So you have a great day, and I hope you enjoyed this. Please check out the link for the full episode to listen to it. There's a lot more to go. Good morning. This is Hacker Mike coming at you at 5.40 in the morning from the heart of New Jersey in the suburbs of Trenton. A place which likes to call itself Princeton South. Because it's south of Princeton. It's just, it's almost like butter. It tastes just like Princeton. <clears throat> Considering that Trenton has such a bad rep, and Princeton is so nice, everyone wants to identify with a fancy university. But um, our postal code shows up as Trenton, so there you go. It doesn't show up as Princeton. <clears throat> so it's a beautiful, cloudy day. I can't see Venus. She has left me. The star of beauty. 
we had a uh, good we had a good uh, couple of clip podcasts <clears throat> in the last couple of days. It's been very interesting. I just finished listening to Jocko's presenting his book on the hiring process that, and that they've written echelon front they do recruiting for people and it's quite interesting the murder squad uh, the murder uh, interviews where they line up a bunch of um, your weak points and then just go after it. That's a thing. They're saying that they want every question to provoke an emotional response and every question to be planned. So that's, um, that's quite interesting. And I was listening to the book about um, Henry Kissinger on the New Books Network, but I fell asleep. It was also quite interesting. Today is Thursday, no agenda day. Okay, we got people coming up. So I'm looking forward to that. Good morning. Like people are moving into my time zone here. Yeah. I have to get up earlier. So I was um, playing Minecraft this morning and last night. And I've reached a new level with my monster grinder, and I'll tell you about it. So basically, a monster grinder is a tool that you build. A lot of what you do in Minecraft are hacks. It's a hack. So there's this thing, monsters will spawn in darkness if you're in the area of them. But monsters will also spawn if um, you have a monster spawner. If you're lucky enough to find a monster spawner in the dungeon, don't destroy it. It'll keep on spawning monsters when you're around. But I've tricked it so when the monsters spawn, the skeletons, they will fall. And before I had them falling to their death and I collected lots of bones and arrows from them. But I wasn't getting the stuff that I really wanted, which was XP and armor and weapons. So now I um, raise the floor on the uh, dead dead drop so that it's just one level. Um, I raise it up to where they don't die, but just by one block. So they fall, they take a significant damage. And some of them do die because they fall from one block higher 
but let's say 90% of them fall from a certain level and they fall and they do not die so that they have one hit left of damage they have like a half a heart left <clears throat> so then I have them corralled in this area and um, then I go in and kill them and I get all the XP so that's working out great and then I finally figured out what to use that XP for so I set up a anvil which allows you to combine two bows together um, and I take an enchanted bow of unbreaking and I, I combine that with a, a power two bow or whatever and it makes it unbreaking power two and also recharges it but that requires XP so your XP is consumed when you're enchanting items so I finally figured out what to do with all that XP use that to enchant items or to merge enchanted items together so now I'm going to build up the ultimate armor and uh, tool set so we can have enchanted golden armor that we've gotten from skeletons. So that is a lot of fun. It's fun because we're watching this video game show. It's an open world. You can set your own goals. And there's so many little things that they've programmed in. And you have a homogenous way of interacting with them. But really, we're just hacking, hacking the system. And it's fun to hack it, to figure out the parameters by experimentation. Well, enough about Minecraft, and um, this is just my little intro, so I don't know what we're going to talk about today. I'm going to update my podcast lists and look and see if there's anything interesting we want to go over. All right. And this show is live. You can call in and leave me a voicemail, or you can join the chat. Just hit me on Telegram. And, um, <clears throat> all right.